From Thriller Digital, welcome to Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, James Lee. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. Episode 3, Mounting Evidence. It's September of 2004, and in the three months since the murders of Cheryl Williams and Carol Barris, Clemente Aguirre Harkin's defense team has been hard at work gathering evidence to prove that while Clemente was admittedly in the home, he did not commit the murders. Scott Henderson, a crime lab analyst, submits a bloodstain pattern analysis report on September 20th. The analysis concludes that Clemente's white socks, black cotton t-shirt, and orange nylon shorts that were found in the bag on top of his roof had contact bloodstains, consistent with Clemente holding Cheryl after discovering her dead. His socks have dropped bloodstains, which are consistent with him picking her up, both corroborating his story to investigators. On his clothing, there were no medium-velocity blood spatters consistent with stabbing someone nearly 130 times. There are four basic types of bloodstains to consider. One, stains that fly off an object, such as blood that flies off a knife between stabbings. Two, gathered blood, such as a large amount of blood drained from someone's body. Three, contact stains, which occur when blood is transferred to a non-bloody object, such as when someone picks up or holds a bleeding person. And four, splatter stains, which occur when a force such as stabbing causes blood to radiate out and splatter. These stains denote movement and the application of force. A month later, Clemente's right to a speedy trial is waived. The prosecution generally has 60 to 120 days in many jurisdictions to bring an imprisoned defendant to trial unless the defendant waives the right to a speedy trial. In Florida, you have the right to a misdemeanor trial within 90 days and a felony trial within 175 days. This limits the amount of time and resources available to the prosecution to build their case against a defendant. Because the time frame given under the terms of a speedy trial is so short, it's possible the defense may not have had enough time to thoroughly investigate the case, and therefore, some people will waive their right to a speedy trial. If one chooses not to waive the right, they take the risk of not having enough time to take depositions, conduct legal research, uncover legal issues, or properly negotiate their case. But there are exceptions to the speedy trial rule. In exceptional circumstances, the time period may be extended. It's most common that a defendant will waive their right to a speedy trial in order to allow their attorney more time to investigate, negotiate, and prepare the case. On October 8, 2004, Catherine Medios, a crime lab analyst, submits a DNA report that demonstrates the DNA from Clemente's socks, shoes, t-shirt, shorts, and boxer briefs is a match for Cheryl Williams. Clemente had admitted to law enforcement that he had contact with Cheryl's body, and the report from Catherine Medios is consistent with Clemente's description of holding Cheryl and picking her up. While it may seem strange that the DNA was discovered on his boxers, the most plausible explanation is that it simply soaked through his shorts, or transferred when he stripped off the bloody clothes. Another DNA sample taken from the palm print on the knife matched Cheryl Williams' DNA, along with Cheryl's blood on the knife blade. We jump forward to June 13, 2005, and Samantha Williams' deposition. It's been almost a full year after the murders, and each side continues to build their case, 
While we've heard about the physical evidence collected, depositions are now being conducted. On June 13, 2005, Samantha Williams, daughter of Cheryl Williams, discloses some interesting information and more background on her family and the relationship with Clemente. She says that she only lived with her mother and grandmother, and that her brother Eric, who was a few years older than her, had a room there but was staying in Houston, Texas at the time. He often traveled there for work. Samantha described her home as consisting of a trailer on one side and an apartment on the other. Samantha recounts that she slept alone in the trailer while her grandmother slept in the living room and her mother slept in the apartment's bedroom. They also had a dog that was a boxer lab mix, and Samantha claims that her dog was very friendly around other people and that there were only a few people he didn't like, and Clemente was one of them. Samantha says, Me being me, I guess the gullible person that I am or whatever, I made the dog like him. I just basically held Shorty's hand and I told the dog, I'm like, look, he's okay, you know? Just tell the dog, basically kind of going against his own instincts, that that he was an okay person, you know? Which is my mistake, I guess. Assistant Public Defender Timothy Caudill, the defense attorney for Clemente, asks Samantha how the dog would react before she made the dog like him. And she said he was growling at him and, you know, just kind of like backing up and just letting us know that it wasn't somebody he would have let in the house. According to Samantha, she had known Clemente for a couple of years before the murders. Samantha said, We specifically asked him, don't come over after, you know, dark. You don't walk into somebody else's house. And he was just like, and he just like, not even take that into consideration. She also says that both she and her mother had spoken to him about it. She recalls that one night, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning and he was standing over my bed. I basically just flipped out. You know, I told him to get the hell out of my house right now, and we never locked our doors. He was just, like, standing there, staring at me. And then I kicked him out of the house and basically walked him to the door and locked the door behind him. Then I believe the next day I told him, you know, look, this is how it is. If we don't answer the door after dark, if the lights are off, you don't just walk into the house. She confirms that the house was set up so that he could get to her part of the house without having to go through her mother's side. She says... Our doors always stay unlocked, just in case, you know, one of my friends or something got kicked out of their house, you know, or anything. We were just really open-minded people. We just, you know, my mom was basically a hippie, kind of. She was just very free-spirited, and we just accepted everybody, thinking that nothing like this could ever happen. Samantha continues. He'd be kind of persistent, pushy. Like, I, I think the reason all this happened was he liked me, I think. And he would try to make the moves on me, you know, sometimes. And I would basically just tell him, no, it it can't happen this way. The court asks, how would he try to make moves on you? And she responds, just try and kiss me, try and, you know, push himself on me. And I just, he was just, you know, trying to flirt with me and stuff. And, And I wasn't interested. She added that Clemente and the guys that lived in the house would frequently have cocaine around. Samantha also reveals there was $150 to $180 in her room that was still there after the murders, so the motive couldn't have been theft. She told the court, I was staying with my now fiancé at the time. I was trying to stay away from the house and a lot because I was trying to straighten out, you know, quit smoking, and I was trying to get away from the drinking and stuff. Mr. Caudill asks, Okay, let's talk about the day that this happened. Do you remember what you were doing that day? Samantha answers, I'd woke up and I had to go to work, and my clothes were at my house, and I was at Mark's house. 
and I didn't think my clothes were dry because they had just been washed the night before and our dryer wasn't working. So I sent Mark to my house to, well, he told me to go ahead and go back to sleep. He said he'd go and get them and he went to the house by himself, probably nine or something in the morning. He ended up going over to my house. I had to be at work at 11. And then it only takes maybe 15 minutes to get to my house and then back. You know, like he didn't live that far from me. So 45 minutes, an hour goes by, about 10, 10.30, you know, goes. And I'm like, all right, well, something's happening. And I'm trying to call him and I can't get through because the cops had held him at my house. Nobody would answer my, uh, the house phone. So eventually his dad got home and he's like, what the hell are you doing here? His parents didn't like me, mind you. So his dad asked me, he's like, well, do you know what happened? And I said, well, what are you talking about? Eventually it came down to it and we got outside and he told me what happened to my mom. Told me my mom was dead and he was going to take me to my house. And then he took me over to my house and that was basically it. Uh, I waited at the house until Mark got done being questioned, which was probably one or two in the afternoon was whenever he got done being questioned because they had him in there for a while. And basically, I just sat with the victim's advocate, Lady Sherry. I sat with her for most part of the day. She was just trying to keep me from doing anything stupid, which I wouldn't have done anyways, but... Samantha says that when she left her house, her mother was next door and her grandmother was sleeping. She says her grandmother goes to sleep really early. Mr. Caudill asks if she had seen Clemente since the murders and she says she saw him the day investigators were going through the house. She says, I was leaning up on the cop car and he walked out of his house and he looked at me and said, you know, what's going on, what happened? And I didn't say anything to him because I was bawling. I was crying hysterically and plus everyone told me not to say anything to anyone. So I mean, I already knew that he knew what happened. Mr. Caudill replies, tell me how. And Samantha says, I just had a feeling I just had a gut feeling. It's really hard to explain. I just had a feeling that he already knew what had happened. Did you know that one in five Americans have had at least one package stolen off their porch in the last 12 months? Eufy's security cameras can help ward off potential porch pirates with their groundbreaking facial recognition technology that determines if an object is human, a vehicle, or an animal. It can even recognize and identify different faces. Eufy has no monthly fee. So once you purchase your Eufy cameras, that's it. No more payments. Right now, you can get a discount on Eufy security cameras by clicking the link in our show notes. Eufy. Smart Home Simplified. A few months pass, and it's January 19, 2006, and the deposition of John Andrich, the chef at Louis Gino's at the time of the murders, is underway. According to John, he worked at Louis Gino's and oversaw Clemente and others in the back of the house, line cooks and dishwashers. He says they called Clemente Nanu, and that he seemed to be a good little worker. Not reliable all the time, but he's a good worker. He says he doesn't remember if he was exactly on time all the time, and that sometimes maybe he didn't come to work. He says that the police came by and were interested in seeing their knives, so they pulled their knives out right there and realized some knives were missing. To quickly recap from episode two, the knife discovered by police between the crime scene and Clemente's home had a 10-inch blade, a white handle, and the word Cisco written in blue on it. Clemente's cousin, Guillermo, 
told police that he had borrowed a similar Cisco chef's knife about six or seven months prior from Louis Gino's, where he worked with Clemente. The same knife that is reported missing from the set. The deposition of Deputy Robert Hemmert occurs on February 6th. He testifies that during his initial interviews with Samantha's boyfriend, Mark Van Sant, and then with Samantha, they both expressed concerns about their neighbor, Clemente. He claims that when he conducted a second interview with Clemente and read him his Miranda rights, Clemente was very cooperative, laid back, and unconcerned about the situation. He claims that after the interview, they took photographs of him standing there and performed fingernail scrapings and swabs. They also collected his shoes right then and there. He was at that point charged with evidence tampering and sent to jail. He says around the 22nd of June, they got major case prints from Clemente at the jail. And he believes that around the 24th, Donna Burks made a positive ID on the knife in comparison to Clemente's print. On the 25th, Hemmer charged him with the murders at the jail. It may be important to mention that several times throughout his deposition, Hemmer says that he doesn't speak Spanish and that Agent Hidalgo conducted the interviews in Spanish with Clemente and that Hemmer just sat in on them. He says usually he would conduct the interview and have the translator translate between him and the interviewee, but Hidalgo conducted the interview himself with no translation to Hemmert and then filled him in after. Hemmert says he never saw the final transcribed version of the interviews in English. I basically had to get an explanation of what he said after the fact. It's curious that the state is able to charge Clemente without a third-party translation of his interview with Hemmert that should have been given in real time. The state relies solely on Agent Hidalgo's recollection of the interview after the fact. Hemmert would go on to say that he was at a huge disadvantage, not understanding Spanish. After Deputy Hemmert's deposition, Diane Schroyer, the manager of Vagabond Way Properties, goes on record with her deposition. She testifies that Cheryl had stopped by her house from around 10 to 10.45 p.m. on the evening of June 16th and chatted with her about her children, that she grew up right next door to her, and that Cheryl was going to check on her brother's place, which was right next to her trailer. She says that she had spoken with their neighbor, Donald Marquis, who had told her that Cheryl said a man had been bothersome to her and she wanted him to leave her alone. She confirms that the man she had been referring to was the man that was arrested, Clemente Aguirre Harkin. On the next episode, as Clemente's trial unfolds, more questions arise. We'll learn more about the testimonies and evidence presented at trial and come one step closer to the jury's decision. And if this case teaches us anything, it's that there's no such thing as a secret. You'll always get caught if you lie, and it's important to have an alibi. See you next time.